I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. The word of the Lord. We're in a series, as I just mentioned, on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. And each week, if you've been with us, you know we've been saying this, that this whole letter is all about one big overriding question. And the question is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Now, this passage we just read, the beginning of chapter 4, we're right at the halfway point of the letter. But this section, last week and this week, this is not just the midway point of the letter. This is actually the center of the gospel. This is the heartbeat. This is the lifeblood, the very essence of what the gospel is. Because in this passage, Paul is beginning to move from the, the theoretical to the deeply personal. In other words, the gospel is not just truth for your minds, although it is that. And the gospel is not just uh, instructions for your life, although it is that. At its deepest level, the gospel is the experience of God in your heart, upon your heart. It's the experience of God. The gospel is knowing God, not just knowing about God, but knowing God at a, at a deeply personal, intimate and transformational level. That's what it is, and that's what God wants for you. So everybody in this room, and I don't care who you are, whatever you may believe about God, wherever you may be at, spiritually speaking, we all long for this. And I understand that we may have different ways of articulating this yearning. Uh, we may not use the language of God, but every single person in this room experiences this longing for something beyond this world. And the ironic thing is that when, when we begin talking about that yearning, it's very difficult to do so without resorting to the language of talking about God or at least talking about something eternal or transcendent. So for instance, uh, Julian Barnes is a very well-known English writer 
Uh, he's also an atheist, and he wrote a book a number of years ago, fairly well known. It's called Nothing to Be Frightened of. That book essentially is a meditation on death. Um, but the very first words of the book are startling. Here's what he says at the beginning of the book. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Isn't that something? He's talking about a yearning for something beyond this world, beyond space and time. But the ironic thing is that when we try to articulate that longing, it's very difficult to do so without bringing God into our language, without bringing in the language of, of, of eternity and transcendence, because the reality is we're all longing for something beyond this world, or actually someone beyond this world. This passage that we just read, this is it. This is what we're longing for, and this is what Paul wants us to understand, but even more than that, to experience it. So as we look at this passage, we're looking at something that we're calling sonship. Paul is talking about what it means to be sons of God. Now, to recap just a little bit from last week as we began to look at this topic, sonship or being sons of God, Paul says, if you're a Christian, you're a son of God. Now, that's gender-specific language. We talked about this. A lot of times in the Bible when we translate it, it's very appropriate to use gender-inclusive language. In other words, there's a word for human being or humanity, and it's appropriate to translate that word human being or humanity. Instead of the default, you know, we just translate man this or man that. It's appropriate a lot of times to use gender-inclusive language, but sometimes the Bible uses gender-specific language to communicate something particular. And it's important to pay attention to that because if you change the language, you change the meaning. So, for instance, the men have to wrestle with the fact that the Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. We, we have to wrestle with that because if you change the word, you actually change the meaning. It's referring to something very specific. It's the same thing here. In the ancient world, sons, and especially firstborn sons, had a level of status and privilege that was not available to any other children. Now, obviously, that's unjust. And throughout the rest of this sermon... I'll probably use the word child or children and sons or sonship interchangeably because in our culture, children, all children, it's understood, should have an access to the same level of status and privilege as any other child. But in the ancient world, that was not the case. And so when Paul uses this language of sons or sonship, he's communicating something very specific, a level of status and privilege that was not available to any other children in that culture. Now, here's the really amazing thing. The Bible will use this specific language to communicate something very particular, even if it was an unjust um, phenomenon in the ancient world, which this was. But when the Bible uses that language, it's very revolutionary in the way it does it because it'll use this language to communicate something particular, but then it subverts that language, as we saw last week, and says, now this status, this privilege of sonship is now available to everybody, regardless of your ethnicity or your economic status or your gender or any other distinction. It's available to everyone. It's the experience of sonship. What is that? Last week, we looked at the nature, the objective nature of sonship. This week, we're looking at the subjective experience of it. The, what does it mean to experience God as Father, to experience it? That's what we're looking at this week, and we want to look at it under three headings. 
why we need this experience, what is this experience, and how do we get it, okay? Sonship, the experience of sonship. Why do we need it? What is it? And how do we get it, all right? First, why do we need it? Paul actually is referring to this need that we have at the end of the passage. So um, if you look in verses 8 and 9, he's talking about this. Now, this whole letter, Paul is very alarmed. It's, this letter is a tornado siren. It's a wake-up call for the church because the Galatians are Christians, but they're in danger. They're new Christians, the recent converts to Christianity, but they're in spiritual danger. And Paul is writing this letter to warn them about this danger that they're in. So what is this danger? He talks about it in verses 8 and 9. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. Now, what Paul is saying here is astounding. But in order to understand what's so astounding about this, we have to understand a couple of things. First, we have to understand that the Galatians, before they became Christians, they were pagans. Now, pagan in our culture and our language doesn't really mean much except as an insult. The way we use the word in our culture is really just to refer to people as a, a heathen. You know, I would not encourage any of you out there to call your friends pagans. It doesn't communicate. It's a pejorative word. But in that culture, paganism was the ancient religion of Greece and Rome. Okay? That was the local country religion. And, and what paganism basically meant was that there was a God behind everything. So, for instance... Paul talks about this in verse 9. He says, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Now that phrase, elementary principles, people go crazy trying to figure out how to translate that or, or figure out what Paul was talking about when he, when he said that. That phrase, elementary principles, can be translated a few different ways. It refers potentially to a few different things. The way Paul is using that phrase in this passage is to refer to the basic elements of the world. Things like uh, earth or fire or air or water. The basic elements, the elementary principles of the world. In other words, paganism said that there's a God behind everything. There is a God of the sea, a God of wine, a God of agriculture, a God of fertility. The basic building blocks of life, the building blocks of the world, okay? Food, sex, drink, children, family, things like that, agriculture, the building blocks of life. Paganism said there's a God behind each one of those things. And if you want to get those things into your life, then you got to worship the right God. So for instance, if you wanted a good harvest, a good crop, today we would just call that financial stability. If you wanted that, then you had to make a sacrifice to the God of the harvest. Or if you wanted children, you know, a, a solid family, a stable family, well, then you would make a sacrifice to the God of fertility. In paganism, there was a God behind everything, and the way you got those building blocks of life into your life was to sacrifice or worship the right God. Now, the simplest and easiest way of understanding this is this. This is what's called idolatry. It's, it's idolatry. And understand, idolatry is not just bowing down to little statues that we make and set up on an altar. It's not just bowing down to a statue. Idolatry is taking any good but created thing and then turning it into an object of worship. 
Idolatry is taking any good thing and then putting it on the throne of your heart where only God belongs. Friends, that is worship. It's worship. It's idolatry. And understand something. The idols themselves are not bad things, okay? It's very easy to get confused about that. People say, oh, you know, Christianity has a very negative view of things like sex and um, and money and, and success and things like that. That's not true. The idols themselves are not bad things. They're good things. In fact, it's because they're good things, it makes it so easy to worship those things. The real problem with idolatry is not the object of our desire. The problem is the distortion of our desires. In other words, idolatry is not a normal-sized desire for a bad thing. It's an oversized desire for a really good thing. We take good things and we turn them into ultimate things. We, we put them on the throne of our hearts where only God belongs. In other words, we worship those things. Now, some of you might say, look, I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic. I'm not a religious person at all. And I certainly don't worship anything. Worship is not a category in my world or in my life. But that's why this concept of idolatry is so helpful Because idolatry helps us to see that whoever you are, just because you're not a religious person, does not mean that you are not a worshiper. Because something, something is going to have ultimate importance and value in your life. There's going to be at least one thing that you are going to say, if I have this, then my life has meaning and significance and happiness. But if I don't have this thing, if I lose it or if I fail to get it, then I'm, I'm, my access to meaning and happiness in this world is now in danger because I don't have this thing. There's something in your life that has ultimate value and importance. And whatever that thing is, that's what we worship. No one has ever said this better, I think, than David Foster Wallace. And I've quoted this before, but we come back to this because A, David Foster Wallace is one of the best writers of the last 30 years. B, he was not a Christian. He was an atheist, and he expresses this so perfectly. So back in 2005, here's what David Foster Wallace once wrote or said. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And you hear what he's saying? When David Foster Wallace talks about worship, he's not referring to a religious ritual. He's talking about the deepest impulse of the human heart to locate our ultimate meaning and happiness in something, in something. Everyone has something in their life that is on the throne of their heart. And whatever it is, that's worship. So to go back to the Galatians, all right? They were coming out of a life in which they worshipped anything or anything uh, or everything other than God. They were pagans. They were, in other words, idolaters. But here's what's so amazing about this passage. Paul says, 
you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods, okay? Idols, false gods. But then he says, but now that you've come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Now, when he says that, it sounds like he's warning them, don't go back to paganism. Sounds like he's saying, don't go back to all your old idols. That's not what he's saying. Because this whole letter, if you've been with this, you'll remember this whole letter is one huge warning against religious observance as a means of salvation. It's one huge warning against an overscrupulous, moralistic, legalistic uh, enslavement to religious rule keeping. That's what this whole letter is about. So, in, for instance, in verse 10, he refers to this when he says, You observe days and months and seasons and years, this feast, this observance, this ritual. You're, you're locked in this religious observance, and you think that through this now you can find salvation with God. The Galatians were in danger of being trapped in religious legalism. That's what he's warning them against. The whole reason he wrote this letter is because there were some false teachers that had come to the church and they were saying, look, in order to be saved, you need faith in Jesus. You got to have that. We're not disputing that. But in order to be saved, in addition to faith in Jesus, you also need to obey all of the commandments that God gave the Israelites through Moses not just the moral law, but all the ceremonial laws and the clean laws. And, and especially, they were saying, you need to get circumcised. If you don't get circumcised, you can't be saved. That's what they were saying. And that's what Paul is warning them against. So when he says that, it sounds like he's warning them, don't go back to paganism. He's actually saying, no, <laughs> don't get trapped in religious observance. He's saying that religious observance, legalistic, moralistic rule-keeping can be just as idolatrous as the party life. That, that religion can be just as idolatrous as irreligion. In fact, you know, paganism, while it had a sense of morality and virtue and things like that, living a good life, paganism uh, involved a lot of festivals. And at the festivals, there were a lot of things like eating and drinking and, and orgies. Uh, things like that. I mean, paganism in a lot of ways was sex, drugs, rock and roll. That's what they were coming out of, and that's the way they were living their life. And Paul is saying to them, if you think that by your religious observance you can win favor with God and the love and acceptance of God, you're essentially going back to what you just came out of. It is just as idolatrous as the party life. Because both of those things, whether it's irreligion or religion, both of those are ways of being your own Lord and Savior. Both of those are ways of getting control over your life, control over your access to meaning and happiness in your life. And therefore, both of those are ways of being alienated from God. Both of them. You're just as lost. Because instead of putting sex and money and power and success on the throne of your heart, You can put religious observance on the throne of your heart and be just as alienated from God when you do that. The irreligious approach makes God an enemy. It says, God, leave me alone so I can live my life the way I want. But the religious approach makes God a boss. It says, God, I've obeyed everything you've ever told me to do. Now you owe me. But here in this passage, Paul is saying what we need is to experience God not as an enemy and not as a boss. We need to experience God as a father. Every other way of of relating to God leads to enslavement 
Because we take things and we put them on the throne of our hearts and we worship those things. We say we can't live without them. And whatever it is, those things enslave us. Because whatever it is, those things don't have the power to actually give us the meaning and happiness that we're looking for. And, and yet we keep going back to those things, don't we? Because you know how it is, they give us just a little taste. We wouldn't go to those things if they didn't work for us at some level. It's kind of like addiction. You just keep, it gives you a little bit of a taste, a little bit of a rush, but then it keeps you coming back. It'll give you less and less in return for demanding more and more. That's what idols do. That's what Paul is warning us against, and that's why we need to experience God not as an enemy, not as a boss, but as a father. Friends, the only way you're gonna get that is this experience of sonship. That's why we need this, and that's the first thing we see. But secondly, what is it? What does it actually mean to experience God as a father? Because notice how Paul puts it in verse six. If you look at it, he says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, it's very interesting what he says here. Notice he says, because you are sons, God sends his spirit into your hearts. You're, you're already a son. To be a Christian means you are already a son, but the experience of that sonship is something different than the status of sonship. So to recap a little bit from last week, if you weren't here, in the ancient world, as I mentioned, being a son meant something very specific. It didn't just mean being somebody's genetic offspring. It wasn't referring to somebody's genetic nature. Sonship referred to their status as the heir. As, as the one who was going to receive everything from the Father. It was a very special, unique, privileged status that belonged only to the firstborn and the heir of the Father. Everything that belongs to the, to the Father belongs to the Son. So Paul is saying when you become a Christian, you become a son. And notice the way that you become a son. In verses four and five, Paul says, God sent his Son into the world to redeem us so that we might receive adoption as sons. So in other words, the job of Jesus is to make us sons. But then in verse six, it says, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Now, notice what's going on here. There's two sendings. The first sending is God sends his, his son into the world. The job of the son is to make us sons. But then God sends his spirit into our hearts. The job of the spirit is to help us actually experience the reality that God has already wrought in our lives through the work of Jesus on the cross. Now, those are two different things. The making of sons and the experiencing of that sonship are two different things. Now, here's what this means for our lives, to experience it. It's one thing to know with your mind that you're a child of God, but a very different thing entirely to actually experience that, that sonship. But that's what God wants for you, not just to know it, but to experience it, because it's in the experiencing of it that transforms you. It transforms you, and when that transforms you, that transforms your relationship with God. It transforms your relationship with him. So, for instance, there's a great book by a wonderful theologian and pastor named Sinclair Ferguson. It's called Children of the Living God. And in this book, he talks about adoption, what it means for God to adopt us as his children. And, and one of the ways he does this in the book is he goes back to Jesus' parable in Luke 15 about the prodigal son, probably one of Jesus' most famous parables in the whole Bible. But if you're not familiar with the story, in the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus tells a story about a younger son who goes to his father and he says, Father, give me my inheritance. And then he takes the money, runs away, and he spends it all on riotous living. 
sex, drugs, rock and roll. But then when all the money runs out, he repents and he realizes, man, I had it good in my father's house. And so he wants to go back to the father, and, and, but in order to do so, he prepares a little speech. And his speech goes like this, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he's on his way back to the father, but as he's going back, he thinks, you know, the only way I'm getting back into this household is there's no way I'm worthy to be a son anymore. The only way I'm getting back into this household is if I work for it. If I earn it, if I, if I perform my way back into the house. Now, here's how Sinclair Ferguson describes this in his book. He says, this parable epitomizes the disposition of some Christians. Lurking in their hearts, there often remains this sneaking suspicion. I am not worthy to be God's son, but perhaps I can struggle through as one of his hired servants. At the root of such thinking is an inability to believe that salvation is entirely of God's grace and love. We are often slow to realize the implications of that. We're sons, but we are in danger of having the mindset of hired servants. In other words, we may pay lip service to the fact that, yes, I'm a child of God. Yes, I'm a son of God. I believe I'm his child. But in our hearts, we don't really believe that God is gracious enough or good enough or rich enough or generous enough to welcome and receive us as his children. By the way, the elder brother in this parable, there's an older brother. He's just as lost and alienated and suffering from the same issue as the younger brother. Because at the end of the story, the younger brother comes back and the father welcomes him back and the older brother's furious because he's never left the farm. He stayed there working and obeying the father the whole time. And he's so angry, he says to the father, look, bub, I've been slaving for you all these years and you never even gave me a goat to celebrate with my friends. It's the same mindset. You owe me. I've been obeying you. I've been working for you. It's not, it's stingy. It sounds very humble. It sounds very dutiful and obedient, but it's actually an insult to God because it's saying, I don't believe you're good enough. I don't believe you're generous enough. I don't believe you're loving enough. Friends, God wants you to experience him as a father, not as a boss, not as an enemy, not just to know that he's father, but to experience him as father. And there's maybe no better experience, uh, picture of what this experience is like than at the very um, in that parable, when the, when the younger son comes back, if you know, remember he, he's got his speech already and he comes back and he's going through his speech, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But what does the father do? Instead of sending the son to go work on the farm, the father kisses the son. In fact, it says he falls on his neck and he kisses him all up and down. It's this radical experience of the father's love. What is a kiss? What happens to you when somebody that, that you love kisses you? You may know about their love, but when they kiss you, you're actually experiencing that love. You're, you're tasting their love. That's what God wants for you. The experience of sonship is when God sends the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, into your life to kiss you, to give you the kiss of the Father, to persuade you that you are no mere servant or slave, or beggar, or orphan, but you are a beloved child of the Father, and you are welcomed into his family. What is that experience like? What is it like? In verse 6, Paul says, God sent his, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. I mean, if you meditate on that one verse, the, 
the implications of this are endless, endless. But let me just mention a few for us, maybe some of the biggest ones. First, the experience of sonship means assurance. It means confidence. So for instance, there's a passage in Paul's letter to the Romans that is kind of parallel to this passage. Paul says some very similar things. So in Romans chapter eight, he says that you received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So what happens is the spirit bears witness to our status as God's children, as God's sons, beloved, accepted, and treasured by the Father. So as Sinclair Ferguson wrote, one of the easiest things for us as Christians is to be filled with doubt. Okay, so we'll doubt ourselves that we're worthy of God's love. We'll doubt God that he's gracious or loving enough to actually love us like that and welcome us like that. Um, it's kind of like being on trial. In fact, the language of bearing witness is legal language. It's courtroom language. So for instance, the image is that there's a trial going on and there we are, we're in the defense and all these witnesses are being called against us and the biggest witness is our own conscience. And, and all these witnesses are saying to us, you call yourself a child of God, how dare you? You don't act like a child of God. You're not worthy to be God's child. How could you possibly call yourself a child of God? There's all these witnesses that are coming against us. The witness of the Spirit means that the Spirit gets up in your defense. The Spirit gets up to advocate for you. But it's very interesting because Paul doesn't say that the Spirit bears witness for us. It says the Spirit bears witness with us. In other words, imagine the courtroom. It's going on. It's in your heart, and the trial is not going very well. But all of a sudden, there's a surprise witness for the defense. It's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit stands up, and, and instead of talking to anybody else, he begins witnessing to you. You are a beloved child of the Father. You are beloved of the Father. You are well, well pleased with the Father. You are a child of God. The Spirit gives witness to our spirit, assuring us and bearing witness to us that we can have confidence and assurance that we are children of God because it is so easy to get enslaved by our performance mindset, is it not? To have this slave mindset. You're constantly looking at how well you're doing, my religious performance. You're constantly thinking, oh, if I'm not performing well enough, then God's not gonna love me. We're constantly thinking that God's love, God's acceptance, God's um, favor in our lives completely depends on our performance, how well we're doing religiously, when in fact the gospel says it's the exact opposite. That God's love in our lives does not depend on us being a good person. It's the opposite. It says, no, no, no. A Christian is not someone who gets God's love by being a good person. A Christian is someone who has already received that love. And because they've received that love, now that's a whole new motivation for going out into the world and striving to be a better person. It's the complete opposite of the way we think it works. A Christian is not someone who strives in order to get God's love. A Christian is someone who strives because she's already received God's love. So the first thing is assurance. That's the first experience of sonship. The second thing that I would want to bring out is the experience of sonship means intimacy. Intimacy with God. So for instance, Paul says the Spirit comes crying. That word crying actually could maybe even be translated crying out. It's a very strong word. 
It's a passionate word. It's a powerful word. The Spirit comes crying out, but not just crying out, crying out, Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic word for Father. It was a very deeply personal and intimate word. In fact, Abba is what Jesus always called God. And he's now inviting us to use the same language that he uses when he talked to God. Jesus is saying, that's the way I relate to God. Now you go talk to God. You go relate to God the same way that I do. You know, for instance, when a baby's learning to talk, the language is very simple. So, you know, papa, mama, dada, abba. That's what this word, this is language that is crying out to God at the most intimate, personal, and vulnerable level. It's the language of trust. It's the language of security. It's the language of vulnerable, trusting love that this is an Abba. This is a father that will never let you down. And actually, this is something that none of us have ever really experienced, even if you've had the best possible earthly parents. And actually, for some of you, this is very difficult. The concept of God as father is incredibly difficult for you because your earthly father was not a very good earthly father. But the fact that, that, that language, that word is so difficult for us actually points to the reality that deep in our hearts we really do know what a good father is supposed to be like and that we never had it. You can now. You can have this. So first, the experience of sonship, it means assurance. Secondly, it means intimacy with God. But lastly, it means obedience. Oh, yes. But a completely transformed obedience, okay? In other words, if God adopts you as his son, not on the basis of anything you do, you don't earn it, you don't merit it, you don't work for it, you do not perform in order to get this sonship. If the basis of God's love and acceptance for your life is not anything you do but a sheer gift of grace, do you know what that that means for your life? It means that um, as long as you're relating to God as a boss... Uh, there's a limit to what he can ask you, isn't there? You know how this is if you're an employee. You know, a boss can ask you to do certain things, but then there's some things a boss cannot ask you to do. You're an employee. You have rights. So if the boss wants to ask you to do something, well, we're going to have a sit-down. We're going to have a little conversation about, you know, some compensation here if you want me to do this. But if you're relating God to God not as a boss but as a father and a father who's already given you everything, that means that there's nothing this God can't ask you to do. He's already given you everything. That means we owe him everything. That means there's nothing he can't ask us to do. And that is frightening, incredibly difficult, because why? We want to be our own lords and saviors. We want to have control over our life. If God can ask you to do anything, that means you no longer have control over your life. The Father does. And that's scary because we want to have control over getting our needs met. We want to have control over you know, having access to our meaning and happiness in this world. But friends, there are times in the Christian life when God might ask you to let go of some earthly good for the sake of some larger purpose, either in your life or in this world, and we may not even know what it is. But he may ask you to let go of it, either for a season or maybe even for the rest of your life. We don't know. And, and if God asked you to do that, would you be willing or able to do it? You know, what if it meant being single or poor or bearing some other burden, um, maybe even for the rest of your life? Would you be able to do it? 
And understand something. Remember what we said. These are good things we're talking about. Idols are not bad things. They're good things. Marriage is a good thing. Financial stability is a good thing. These are good things. But if God asked you to let go of it for a season or for some longer period, maybe even the rest of your life, would you be able to do it? Because you know and you trust that God is your father and that he, he loves you and that he will provide what you need. Could you do it? If you say, you know, well, now wait a minute. You know, there's nothing wrong with these things. And if, if other people get to enjoy these things, then why is God holding out on me? It's not fair. Actually, it's cruel of God. God would never ask me to do something like that. It's cruel. It's a cruel and unusual punishment. Oh, friends, you don't know your father. Do you think that God would ever ask you to let go of something that he's not infinitely better equipped to provide you with? We all need love. We want that. We need it. We all need security. We all need and, and desire things like meaning and happiness and significance and things like that. Do you not believe that your father is rich enough or generous enough or loving enough or gracious enough to provide you amply from his storehouse? Listen to me. If the absence of any earthly good can prevent your ultimate happiness, that earthly good is your ultimate happiness. Can I say that again? If the absence or lack of any earthly good can prevent or block or hinder your ultimate happiness in this world, then that earthly good is your ultimate happiness. Because we take things and we put them on the throne of our hearts and we say, unless I have that, I can't have meaning and happiness. I can't have a meaningful life without it. We want these things. We cry out for these things. We take these things and we put them in the place of God. And, and, and those things become gods in our life and we are enslaved to them. And that's the reason we can't know God as a father. We can't experience God as a father because something is in the place where only the father belongs. Get it out of there. Get it out and give God the control that only he deserves, that only belongs to him. The only way, friends, the only way that you'll be able to do that is if you know that this is a father you can trust. It's the only way it'll happen, and that actually leads to our last point. We've seen why we need this experience of sonship, and we've seen what it actually is, but lastly, we need to see how we can get it. How do we actually get this experience of sonship? I need to be brief, but here's how. When Paul says that God sent the Spirit into our hearts crying out, you have to know that this is not the first time that God has sent someone crying out. If you remember back in verses 4 and 5, it says God sent his Son. In other words, Jesus was sent. Jesus is God. God sent him. That means he came from heaven. Jesus is God. But it says born of a woman. That means that Jesus took on human flesh. He became a human being. And not only that, it says that God sent him born under the law. That means that Jesus, he bore the whole burden of, of the highest standards of holiness and righteousness and obedience to God, and yet he's the only one who is ever able perfectly to fulfill every single one of those standards. The only being in all of history who is ever able to do that. And the reason is because he's the only being who's the perfect son. That means that Jesus is the only one for whom there was never a moment when God wasn't perfectly on the center of his, in the center of his life and on the throne of his heart. And Jesus is the only one for whom there was never a moment when God wasn't perfectly communicating to him the riches and the extravagance and the generosity of his love 
He always heard the voice of the Father, always knew the love of the Father, was always experiencing the kiss of the Father in his life. So when Jesus was talking to God, he always, always referred to God as Abba, Abba, Abba. There was never a moment in his life when Jesus didn't relate to God as Abba. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was crucified, Jesus, in, in agony, comes to the garden and he cries out, Abba, Father, he cries out. Father, if it's possible, is there some way for me to be spared from this fate? There was never a moment in his life when Jesus didn't know God as Abba. No moment except one. Because on the cross, Jesus cried out. You read the gospel accounts, it says he cried out. But instead of crying out, Abba, Father, it says he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In one last moment, he cried out, hoping to find the encouragement, the consolation, and the love of the Father. Instead, all he got was a cold, icy silence. The beloved Son of the Father came looking for the love of the Father, and all he got was shut out, cast out, and and flung aside into the deepest pit of God's condemnation. Why? Because we've got something on the throne of our hearts, and we're enslaved to it. And we need to be set free. And the only way we could be set free is if some perfect being came and paid the price for us to be set free. Set free from all those gods that are sitting on the thrones of our hearts. Because we put anything other than God on the throne of our heart. In the center of our life, we've rejected the Father. We've alienated ourselves from the Father. Friends, the Bible calls that sin. I recognize in our culture that is a very problematic, difficult world, but, word, but sin simply means taking anything other than God and putting it on the throne of your heart. And we all do it. And whatever it is, those things enslave us, and we need to be set free from those things. Jesus purchased the price of our freedom with his blood on the cross. That's what he was doing there, was setting us free, purchasing our pardon, purchasing our redemption with his very own blood because on the cross Jesus was treated as an outsider as a reject as a rebel as an enemy of God so that we could be treated and called children of God have you received that gift that redemption that freedom if you haven't I would ask you why not do you yearn for God do you miss him As Julian Barnes said, even though you may not use that language, do you yearn for the experience of God or something beyond yourself? This is where you get it. But, but the only way you can get it is to say no to all the other things that are currently residing on the throne of your heart and say yes to Jesus, yes to the redemption that he offers you through his blood on the cross. It's yours for the asking. Go get it. And if you have received it and you do know this gift of freedom that Jesus has purchased for you. My encouragement to you this week is that you would fill your eyes and your heart and your mind with what Jesus did for you on the cross. It's so easy to fill our minds and our hearts to become engrossed with all kinds of other things, you know, these things. They engross us. And I'm not saying they're bad things. I have screens in my life too. But what engrosses you? What compels you? What draws you in? What sucks you in? What captures your heart and your imagination? You need to, you need to be so engrossed in Jesus 
in the same way that, you're in, that we're all engrossed in our screens. That's what you need. And the more you do that, the more you see what Jesus did for you on the cross, the more you see and know that assurance and that intimacy and that obedience because God sends his spirit into your hearts to, that you might know more and more that you are a beloved child of the Father. It's yours. Embrace it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us a way to call you children, to call you Father so that you could call us children. And we pray even now that you would help us more and more to embrace the, the sonship that you offer us through the atoning work of Jesus on the cross and that you would make us therefore vessels of that love and that sonship to the rest of the world around us. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.